Father, we just want to hear from you. We want your words to penetrate our hearts. We pray that our hearts would be soft and open, our ears would be open, that we would see the things that you want us to personally this morning, Lord. And I believe that you are here to meet with each one of us in the way that, that we need to hear from you. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're back to rejoicing. <laughs> um, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoicing appears to be a choice that we can make. And um, it's a choice that I've learned to make, that I am to rejoice. And that I actually can make that choice and do it. You know, in general, we don't have choices about the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But we do have a choice of response. When we were living in Vienna, we became very close friends with two, two families. And they both, both of these families had um, dealt with the death of a loved one. Um, and both of them were teenagers. One of my friends, one of the couples, the wife's sister, had died in a horseback riding accident. And that incident, when my friend was a teenager, defined her whole life from then on. It was the defining moment. And um, she expected bad. She um, had a negative attitude towards life in many ways. She couldn't get past that. The other family, their son, who was a very close friend of our son, came to um, the United States from Austria. And um, his freshman year of, high, of college, he dropped dead of a heart attack. He, he was doing an on-campus job in the cafeteria, went out to empty some trash, and, and somebody came out and found him, and he was gone. I mean, it was an instantaneous rem removal from this earth. And um, when his parents got the news and the word spread in the, in the community of believers in Vienna, um, people came and met at his house, at, at their home. And um, the father said, asked people if they would pray with them. And they bowed their heads. And the father was the first one to pray. And he prayed, Father, thank you for the life of our son, Andrew. That was the first prayer that he had. It was a defining moment for that family as well, but in a completely different way. And we have a choice when we experience life and what is the surprises of life as to how we're going to respond. And we all know that there are situations that we look at. Now, obviously, no two situations are exactly the same. But you see one person responding with hope and joy and peace in God and others who are angry and walk away and, and have no hope. And I believe we have a choice. And we have a choice to obey this command that we're given. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The command to rejoice can always be obeyed. It is not always easy. It is not always easy. Rejoice in the Lord always. In the midst of a conflict. In the midst of adversity. In the midst of depravity. Because 
joy is not resting on favorable circumstances, but in the Lord. And I think it's really profound that Paul repeats, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He, he says it again. Now, it's really important that we look beyond Philippians 4.4 4, that says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And look at the rest of what that scripture is. Starting in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord it is, at, is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So in this passage, it starts with the command to rejoice, but it's followed immediately by a second command, do not be anxious about anything. Joy is not about getting rid of problems, but it's about getting rid of the fear of those problems. You know, when Paul wrote this letters to the Philippians, he was not in a happy place. He was in prison, and it was actually the last prison stay he was going to have. He was going to die soon. And things are not going to be getting any better for the church either. There's great persecution ahead. Nero is about to begin his reign, and Christians are going to be torn apart by wild animals in the arena. They're going to be covered with tar and set ablaze. To light the emperor's garden. There's a time coming. Soon. After Paul writes these words. That's going to be of great grief. And loss. And pain. And torture. Even for those who have strong faith. Especially for those. Who have strong faith. So. Paul is not just talking a Pollyanna kind of talk here. Like oh let's all just rejoice. Let's be happy. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we need to have our joy in the Lord. He's telling them to rejoice no matter what. He's telling them rather than fear, choose faith. Not because it's easy, but because it's necessary. Not because God's going to miraculously intervene and save them all from hardship. History tells us that that is not what happened. In, in Philippi, Christians were going to suffer. Throughout the world and throughout time, Christians are going to suffer. Because God is at work. And his work is for the salvation of the world. And often, God uses pain and even death to save others. He's, Christ's own death is our salvation. The eternal spirit of the Christian cannot be harmed, and their suffering will have meaning. We do not have a command to be happy, and we don't have a, an example of a happy Jesus, although I think he was happy plenty of the time. You couldn't hang out with those 12 guys and not be happy sometimes. <laughs> but we do have a promise of joy given to us by Jesus himself. 
John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that you may have joy, that, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Full joy. The word in the Greek is Cairo. And the ancient Greeks describe it as a good mood of the soul. And the ancient Greeks tell us it is something that is only found in God, that it comes with virtue and wisdom, and that its opposite is not sadness, its opposite is fear. Fear is our great obstacle to rejoicing. Aunt Bessie loved to visit her nieces and nephews. However, she had relatives all over the country. So the problem was that no matter how much she enjoyed seeing these little nieces and nephews, she hated flying. No matter how safe people told her it was, she was always worried that someone would have a bomb on the plane. She read books about how safe it was, and she listened to the stewardess demonstrate all the exits and all the safety measures, but she still worried herself just silly every time a visit was coming up. Well, her family felt bad about this, that she was always so uptight and worried, and so they decided that if she could see the statistics, that she would be convinced that it was safe. So they sent her to a friend of the family who was an actuary. And she was a little suspicious, you know, so she says, so tell me, what are the chances that there will be someone on the plane who has a bomb? And the man looked through his tables and he says, well, you know, actually, it's a very small chance. Maybe one in 500,000. She thought about that for a minute, and then she said, well, okay, so what are the odds of two people being on a plane that have a bomb? And again, he looks through his tables, and he was like, I mean, it's like extremely remote, about one in a million. And so Aunt Bessie nodded and left his office, and from that day on, every time she flew on a plane, she took a bomb with her. first obstacle to rejoicing is fear. And we're going to look at how we can overcome that. And the second obstacle tied right into fear is lack of faith. Fear is almost always an option. We face very common fears. I'm just going to share a few things that I have found over the years that I fear. I, um, I have feared health issues, um, and I, I have reason to. My family and I joke that my medic alert bracelet should be a charm bracelet. Um, I have fibromyalgia. I have a pacemaker with a heart issue. I have um, type 1 diabetes. Um, it's just really exciting, this body. <laughs> but, you know, it can cause fear. It can cause, it can cause me to be a little bit worried about that. I am at the point in my life where I think, 
Is this it? Is this as good as it's going to get? Like, is everything great behind me? (laughs) I can fear death, fear of my own death, fear of people I love, the potential of, um, of death staring us in the face, of moving. I shared last night how our family moved from um, California to Austria. You know, that was a decision that my husband and I made and that our children had to agree to. I mean, we were going to go whether they agreed to it or not, but they were in on it. That's a huge thing. It not only affected my husband and I, but it affected our children. And, of course, it affected their grandparents, their aunts and uncles, our friends. You know, those decisions that we have to make that are our decision to make and yet have profound effect on others. Failure. I've been in a place where I thought, okay, if I fail, I fail everyone. I could blow it for the whole group right here. That my failure is going to be final. This is going to be the final tick off the list. Okay, it's over. Financial woes. I mean, probably there's none of us that don't have some kind of financial woes. I was interested that wealth is a fear that many people have. I, I would like to experience that. <laughs> I think I could face it with courage. But you know, it kind of, it doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you're on. Financial issues are things that we fear. My husband and I, you know, used to joke, and now we look at each other like I think we're serious, that our little 32-foot travel trailer that's 25 years old is our retirement home. (laughs) You know, there's, there's legitimate reasons why we have fear. When I was in high school taking driver's ed, they, the um, teacher was saying that a lot of times in a, act, in a car accident where someone has been drunk, it's the drunk that survives. And the reason is, is because they're very relaxed. <laughs> so, you know, I, as a teenager, I'm thinking, okay, well, if I'm ever going to be in an accident, I'm just going to go. <laughs> that is not our natural response. I've been in car accidents, and I did not relax. <laughs> when we... Received news some months ago that my niece, who who has three young girls, has metastasized stage four cancer. It was a legitimate reason for fear. It was a legitimate reason for fear. We look at our bills and we look at our income and somehow there's not a matchup. And and we've known people who've lost their homes, who've lost their retirement, who've lost in great ways. And those are some legitimate things that happen, circumstances. But we still go back to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And for those of us who know Jesus, who have Christ living in us, it is not about what happens to us. It's how we respond to what happens to us. Psalm 34, 4 through 8. Now i got to put my glasses on. Because you know, my eyes are going. But I think it's on the screen. Yep. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Just to highlight it. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. 
there are going to be troubles. We know this. I would be surprised, shocked, if there wasn't if there was a person in here who hasn't had troubles of some sort. And yet over and over in scripture, we read the words, do not fear, do not be afraid, fear not. There are more than 300 times when those words are written in God's word. Tells me that God knows us. He knows that our tendency is going to be to be fearful, to be afraid. And that there are real reasons why we might experience fear. You know, one of the most... Um, oftentimes that Jesus says, do not fear, is when his presence is there. When, they, when you see an angel, they, the angels always start with, okay, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. Even the very presence of God, even the very light of him, can cause us to fear. And, and we do not have to be afraid. We can make a choice not to be afraid. A catastrophe. A catastrophe is a momentous, tragic event, ranging from extreme misfortune to utter overthrow or ruin. Okay, I'm going to be afraid of that. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Catastrophe. The thing about fear is that fear grows in darkness. If you think there's a boogeyman in your room, turn on the light. Have you ever noticed how your fears are more pronounced at night? How much harder they are to get rid of? I mean, they just are. The darkness, the actual physical darkness is harder for us to sort through even our own thinking in the darkness. And, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but there's many a time when I wake up in the morning and think, oh my gosh, what was that all about? What was I doing last night? Why was I fussing about this in my mind? In the light, we so often are able to see that our, our fears were really exaggerated or unreal, that they really don't have a basis. But it's hard to recognize that when you're in the darkness. When I was in high school, my family, my three sisters, my mom and dad and I, went back to Oklahoma to visit my dad's relatives. It was always a big treat when we got to go to Oklahoma. Went to my Uncle Bob's farm. It was awesome. But we visited my Aunt Ines and Uncle Omer. I mean, are those two Oklahoma names or what? (laughs) And Uncle Omer owned a mortuary. And we, my older sister Judy and I, we spent one night... Actually, my aunt and uncle's house was next to the mortuary, and they had two kind of grown sons who had moved out, but they used to have like a room actually in the basement of the mortuary. And so my sister and I ended up staying in the boys' room in the mortuary. Okay, that's just creepy. I mean, it was. And of course, you know, a couple of high school girls, we just like worked ourselves into a frenzy. (laughs) And... The room had a, um, <laughs> had a door with a window in it that was kind of frosted, so you couldn't really see through it. Only we could see a shadow through <laughs> the window. And, of course, it was the shape of a coffin. And, oh, my gosh, we, we were scared silly. I mean, we were just like, I mean, really scared to death 
morning, my Aunt Inus and Uncle Omer came over to the, you know, and were getting us up because we are going to have breakfast. And we very, you know, tremulously said, what's in that room? And, and my Uncle Omer just walks over, opens the door, and goes, well, it's the, it's the car. <laughs> That's your car? That's what, I mean, all night we had scary visions all night long. In the darkness, we do not see clearly. And by that, I'm talking about us living in darkness and not really having a real picture of, of what, is, what is out there and that keeps us from seeing what is true. There are things that keep us in the darkness, living in the finite future. Um, in his book, Running Scared, Edward T. Welch says, fear is living in the future, imagining what might happen in the future, not what is true right now. Going down that path that we don't need to go down. Thinking about this and that and this and that. That could happen, but we, it's not there yet. When... Um, when our son Ben was a baby, we were living up in Antioch, and um, my husband took his, da- took his dad's car and drove to um, Sacramento for some sporting event. I-, I don't even remember what it was. But I was at home alone. We had just moved to a new house. I had no telephone, and, um, and he went off to this basketball game or whatever. Well... It got later and later and later, and he wasn't coming home. I don't know, you know, you guys kind of live in that, that up here in Northern California where the Sacramento River has all of these levees and stuff that, you know, and it's a dark road that he was on, and I always hated when we were driving on that road at night, and that's where my husband was going to be driving. Well, it got later and later and later and later, and he, he wasn't home, and I got more and more awake the later it got. And I, and I didn't know what to do because I didn't have a phone. I couldn't call anybody. I, I had a friend who lived about a mile away, and I was actually thinking I'm going to bundle up the baby in the stroller and walk to their house because I was so scared, and I was all by myself. And then I heard a motorcycle drive up in my driveway. And I immediately knew that the police were coming to tell me that my husband had gone off into the river and was gone. I was <laughs> I was devastated. In the matter of about a minute, I had him buried. I had been I had been very brave. And in walks my husband. I was like, what? Gosh. <laughs> I mean, really, seriously, I'm not, I, I can picture exactly that event. I mean, honestly, dead, buried, kind of moving on a little bit. <laughs> How fast I went down that road. How fast I was way over here. And it turned out my husband had, his car had broken down. He'd gotten a ride to his friend's house who had a motorcycle, and he rode his motorcycle home. You know, I mean, it was all very simple. 
It's that going down that path where we need to put a stop sign in our thinking and say, okay, enough, enough. We have feelings and often our feelings will mislead us. A few years ago, the coach from the from Louisville, at the end of a big victory game of of, ba- of basketball, somebody let off um, some sort of noisemaker, and they showed this on TV because he obviously thought he'd been shot. I mean, he he's walking along, you know, people are congratulating him, and all of a sudden you hear this bang, and he's like, <laughs> "Okay, he was not shot. They were celebrating, but his feeling was, whoa, I'm in danger." We have these feelings like, I don't have any friends. I'm all alone in this. Nobody understands. I'm overwhelmed. I can't do this. What life is putting in front of me is not for me to be able to handle. There's no way out. I'm stuck. I'm completely stuck. This is the very thing that will ruin me. This is too hard. Those are feelings, and they tend to lead us in the wrong direction. I think something that's almost as dangerous is half-truths because they can be logical to a certain degree. They have some truth, but not all the truth. And so they can lead us with a kind of a little bit of, well, I know this is true. When, um, when we moved to Austria, I had just recently been diagnosed as a type 1 diabetic, but I was in what they call the honeymoon stage, and the insulin I... I didn't even need to take insulin at the time. My body was kicking in on a last little hurrah. But after we got there, I actually had to start on insulin. And I, we had just moved there. I, my German was really bad. They put me in the hospital, and their education for diabetes was that a nurse came in and handed me a syringe and just pointed to my leg. That was it. You know, I, I'm thinking, okay, where's that orange that, you know, you're supposed to shoot some into, you know, I mean, I've seen that. So I was so diligent to be sure that there was no air in that syringe, that I was flicking that baby like nobody's business, making sure that every bubble was out. Because I've seen it. I've seen it on Perry Mason. They kill people with those. (laughs) They fill a syringe with air, they shoot it, and the person is gone. And I am not exaggerating when I say every time I gave myself a shot of insulin, I would think, thank God, oh, I made it. I lived through that one. So I'd been giving myself insulin for a few months, and we had some friend from the United States that came to visit us. (laughs) And she's a nurse. And she's in the kitchen one night while I'm (laughs) clicking those bubbles out of that syringe. And she says to me, you know why you have to get the air out. I don't know if there was something in how she said it that I thought, maybe, maybe I don't. <laughs> Why, Natalie? Why do I need to get the hair out? She goes, so that you make sure you get the right dose. Well, what about the bubble going to my heart? <laughs> and she just, I mean, she just totally started laughing. It's like, oh my gosh, Trisha, you know how much air you'd have to have in that syringe? And then you'd have to have all this luck for that bubble not to break up before. I mean, you know, it was like, but I had driven myself crazy. Because <laughs> I knew that bubble had to come out. You know, that's a humorous look at a half-truth. But we... 
We live our lives often believing half-truths, taking that and basing what we're doing on that half-truth. And then, let's be honest, there are the outright lies. There are the outright lies. And they come directly from the father of lies, from hell itself, from Satan, who will lie to us always. He's the father of lies. He will say the things that will most strike our hearts. That we're, the places where we're most vulnerable. What he says to me will be completely different probably than what he says to you. Because he knows that he can work the lies with us. I'll never forget a friend of mine at church telling me he had a granddaughter who had just been born. And he told me that if anything ever happened to her, that he would never trust God again. I mean, those were his words. And the joy of having this granddaughter, if anything ever happens to her, I will never trust God again. I was so sad when I heard that statement. That God couldn't be trustworthy if he didn't do things my way. Of course we would be sad. Of course there are things that are are difficult. But God is faithful and God is there and to be trusted. God Satan will tell us he is he is not to be trusted. Don't trust God. He will tell us that God doesn't really love us. You know, one of the horrible lies that I I tended to believe for a long time was that God loved everybody in the world and me a little bit less. I would see what God was doing in other people's lives and think he really loves her. He really loves them. But there was somehow something in me that was saying, but not me so much. And yet that's a, I mean, that is an outright lie from Satan. He gave his son for us. He gave his son for you. He gave his son for me. He will, Satan will tell us that we know what's best. That I, my way is just a little bit better than God's way. I actually have thought, I think sometimes I could be nicer than God. <laughs> because I see things that are going on, I think, you know, if I was God, if this was up to me, I wouldn't be doing that. I'd be doing this over here. Those are lies that Satan tells us. When he tells us, you have no hope. You have no hope. Well, Jesus is our hope. Here's the connection between fear and our lack of faith. Our fears are born out of our lack of faith. And this is the reality check. How do we overcome fear? We overcome fear with faith. We overcome fear with truth. We have to know what is true about God and how he deals with us. My husband makes a statement. I don't know if he invented this statement, but I always attribute it to him. Do not interpret God by your circumstances, but interpret your circumstances by who God is. We totally flip that around. We look at our circumstances and say, well, God's not faithful. God's just being silent. God doesn't care. Our circumstances are the focus. And what 
we need to get to is we need to look at God and who he is and then interpret our circumstances through that. If you don't trust God, you don't know him well enough. That's the bottom line. If you're having a trouble, if you're having trouble trusting God, you just don't know him well enough. You don't know God's word well enough. You have to know scripture in order for you to fight Satan's lies with what is true. Jesus clearly says, I am the light. First uh, John 1 5. God is light. His written word, scripture, Psalm 119, 105. It's the light to our path. The lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, light is a very interesting thing. Light always dispels darkness. It always dispels darkness. Darkness is always, 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 always overcome by light. Not the other way around. Ever. So let's say that I came in this morning and I had a box. And I had a box in a box. And I had a box in a box in a box. And then I took that box and I wrapped it with duct tape. All six sides of that cube. Inside the box, inside the box, inside the box with the duct tape, what's in there? Darkness. As dark as it can be. No light. If my box was put person size and you were in it, you wouldn't be able to see anything. It would be completely dark. But if you punch a hole in that box, if you cut a hole in that box, the light in this room doesn't go down, does it? Doesn't The darkness doesn't win. The light always dispels the darkness. And when you feel like you are in the dark, then all that is required is that you bring light into the situation. And the light is Christ. The light is Christ. So uh, Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of who shall I be afraid? Man, what a beautiful truth. And Jesus says, I am the truth. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. We need to take that truth and let it be the light in our life. 1 Timothy 4, 10 says, our only hope is in God. Okay, now... Living life without fear does not mean living a life without concerns. We don't become numb so that nothing causes us any pain or sorrow 
or other emotions. But we're not overcome. We're not knocked out. We're not hopeless. There are some very practical ways to get rid of fear. I believe that we really have to actively be building up our faith. We need to practice it. We need to exercise it. We need to make a conscious choice to have faith. And it has to be in intentional. Sometimes it has to be more intentional than others. Sometimes we go through a season of life where, where there's not a lot of stretching and strengthening of our faith. And then we go through other times where we become so aware of how we need to be working it out, exercising it. We do have resources for building up our faith. We have God's word. Being a student of God's word is so essential to growing in your faith. Because if you're not in God's word, if you're not really studying what God has to say, then you are thinking good thoughts or logical thinking, but that's not always biblical, godly thinking. Sometimes the things that sound good, you know, stuff you hear, talk shows or whatever, oh, that sounds good, yeah, I should probably do that, unless you take it all the way to the end. And you realize there's some faultiness here. And what we need to do is use God's word as the guideline for us to be checking. Is this really what God wants? And then there's faithful friends. You know, um, when we first moved back to the United States from Europe, I started having um, pain. Just pain. And we were trying to plant a church, and the pain kept getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually, I was diagnosed as having um, fibromyalgia, which is basically pain. <laughs> and, um, but it had gotten really, really bad. It had gotten to, so bad that um, even taking a shower and having the water hit my skin hurt. Having my, clo having my clothes hanging on my body hurt. Um, I was crabby. <laughs> I kind of pretty, pretty much lost my whole personality. I wasn't sleeping. I literally, literally went for months with maybe an hour of sleep a day. I would wander the house at night. My children were a little afraid of me <laughs> because I would, you know, just like show up in the room in the middle of the night. <laughs> Um, and then I would say weird things. Like one night my daughter Molly woke up and I was, I was curled up on the end of her bed. And, um, and I said, yes, Molly, <laughs> your dad has lost his mind and his red shirt. Hmm. Not sure where that came from. I, um, I was really miserable. And it was one of those things where they would start a medication and then it would take you, you know, two months to decide if it was going to work. And then when it didn't, then you'd start a new medication. And so, I mean, it just went on and on and was really horrible. And in the meantime, we're going to plant a church. And, you know, basically it's people. You need to be with people. I didn't want to see people. I didn't want to be with people. I didn't really like people. <laughs> It was really, really a difficult, stressful time for us. 
And um, I can remember my sister, Judy, coming over to my house. She brought a meal, and she was getting ready to leave. And um, she said to me, Joyce, I believe you're going to get better. And I said, well, that's great. I'm glad you do, because I don't feel like I'm going to get better. And she left. Now, I, because Judy and I have talked about this, I know that she was sincere in saying what she said to me. But, you know, for a long time after, people would say to me, how are you doing? And I would say, my sister Judy thinks I'm going to get better. That was my answer when people asked me, how are you doing? Well, my sister Judy believes that I'm going to get better. I got better. But you know, sometimes it's those faithful friends who, who stand alongside us and believe for us. And I learned from my sister to do that for others. To say to them, I'm believing for you. I get that sometimes we can't believe for ourselves. But I'm believing for you. That God's at work. That God's going to do good in your life. That God has a plan. And we need those faithful friends. Those are one of our resources for getting rid of those fears and worry. And then there's knowledge. Where do you go for your answers? Where do you go for your answers? I encourage you to go to God first. And I encourage you then to confirm what you're hearing from God with godly leaders and friends who come around you and confirm and affirm what you're hearing from the Lord. Choose faith. Choose faith. You know, it's, um, it's like the, the slogan, just do it. I mean, it's choose faith. It's a very simple answer. It's doing it. That's hard. <laughs> That's where it gets difficult in trusting God. One of my favorite scriptures is Hebrews 11, 6. And um, this is actually where we begin the process of rejoice in the Lord. Because we have to believe that God is. That God is. We have to believe that God is. That's the bottom line. And you know, I, I, a while back, I was, when I was reading this verse and I saw that it, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, I thought, well, now why do we have to believe that? Can't we just believe that God is? It's just interesting to me that that's what the verse says. But it does matter that we believe that he's the rewarder of those who seek him. That we believe we have a good God. Who's on our side? That he is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. And fear is the opposite of faith. In um, 2002, I had my annual mammogram. And I got a call from radiology. And I really didn't think anything of it. You know, they do these, they mess them up all the time. And so, you know, they called me, and I called them back, and the right person wasn't there to talk to. So then I said, okay, I'll call later. And then they called me, and I wasn't around, and then I called them. We did this for about two weeks. And finally, uh, I got a hold of somebody, and they said, there's something irregular on your mammogram. 
I, and I still like, okay, you know, what, what, what do we do? So I had to go in, have a little bit different kind of procedure done and stuff. And then um, the doctor came into the room. That is usually not a good sign when you have a mammogram when the doctor comes into the room. And he put an x-ray up on the, you know, that little thing, little lighted deal. And, I mean, immediately, even not being a radiologist, I could see where the breast cancer was. And we had a talk about what would what the next thing would be. And um, my husband had taken me to the doctor's appointment. He was waiting out in the waiting room. So when I came out, he said, well, and I said, not now. <laughs> we walked out to the parking lot. And before I got in the car, I just burst into tears. And, of course, he knew it wasn't good news. And um, he, you know, was kind and wonderful. And we got in the car, and he said, I have an errand. Do you mind if we stop at the, <laughs> the tuxedo shop? <laughs> he was doing a wedding, and he needed to get a tuxedo. I was like, no, that's fine. And so we stopped on our way home. And he went in and was gone for about 15, 20 minutes. And that was the moment when I was sitting in the car by myself that I said, I'm trusting you. I didn't know what it meant. My mom had had breast cancer. She'd had a mastectomy. My younger sister had had breast cancer. She had had a mastectomy. I did not know what the next step was going to be for me. And I literally sat in the car while Bob was in this shop just saying, I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to trust you, God. I said it out loud. And for weeks after, I said it out loud. I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to trust you, God. Not because I knew he was going to heal me. Not because I thought it was going to be easy. Not because... I thought it would, I would go down a different road than other people had gone down, other women before me, my own sister, my own mother. You know what? I just knew I have to trust God. I have to trust God. Not about the outcome. My joy had to be in the Lord. And he was so faithful, so kind, so good. You know, I read some interesting um, thoughts about faith. And Dr. E. Stanley Jones talks about that we're actually fashioned for faith, not for fear. And he says, fear is not my native land. Faith is. I'm so made that worry and anxiety are sand in the machinery of life. Faith is is the oil. I live better by faith and confidence than by fear, doubt, and anxiety. In anxiety and worry, my being is gasping for breath. These are not my native air. I love that. But in faith and confidence, I breathe freely. These are my native air. Happiness is because of our situation. 
We have joy in spite of our situation. With happiness, fear and destruction might be just around the corner. With joy, the very things that others fear have become in God's hands a means of salvation, bringing us and the world to kneel at God's feet. Fear, the greatest weapon of evil, has lost its power in the name of the cross. As we, um, as we leave today, in your um, syllabus, gee, that sounds pretty cool, that little booklet, <laughs> in your syllabus is a quiet time exercise for you to do. Now, I, I want to tell you up front, this is, um, this is a lot, and it's very possible that in the time that you're given to go through the syllabus, that, uh, go through this quiet time, you're not going to have time to do everything that's there. This is a practice of my own personal life, this type of quiet time, um, of a worry list, of taking some time with the Lord. I try to do this twice a year, half a day, um, of just kind of taking an assessment of life. And so I'm encouraging you to get as far into this as you can. But if you can't finish it, finish it later. Finish it later this weekend. Take it home with you. Do it when you have a chance. Do it over a period of time. Um, it's really giving you an opportunity to take what's your personal obstacles to rejoicing and having faith and kind of letting God help you examine those things in your own life. Um, and um, I believe that God wants us to do this kind of self-examination so that we're having our minds open to the places where we are not trusting God, where we need to put our faith more to practice, where we need to exercise it. And that's personal for every one of you. Um, just a reminder that as you leave, um, if you are wanting prayer, there will be some women here that can pray with you. This is a quiet time. And so I really want to encourage you that after I pray and you're dismissed, that you find a place where you can be quiet and that you will be respectful of others so that you're not having conversations with other people or getting caught up. You know, it doesn't take very much of a little bit of a conversation on the way out the door to find yourself a half hour later standing there talking to someone. And I believe God's calling you. I think he wants to meet with you. I think he wants to meet with each one of us. And so you don't want to delay that moment that you have with him to look through his word, to look to have him um, really minister to you. So um, at... I don't know, sometime you'll hear it. There's a bell that will go off, and that will tell you that it's lunchtime. <laughs> and, um, and until that time, just be respectful of those that, obviously, we may not all, we may be within sight of one another. You may go back to your room. You may go someplace outside. Um, but be respectful of others around you and allow them to have their quiet time like you want to have yours. So let's just pray. Father, we just pray that as we go now to spend time with you alone, that you would meet us, each one, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would give us um, insights that maybe 
um, we haven't thought about or that are very timely for where we're at right now. We know that you love us. We know that you're trustworthy. We know that you want to pour your light and your truth into us this morning, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.